Friends, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We are in our 14th sermon in the book of Jonah, and we finally have reached our last chapter. The plan is to finish Jonah next week and then enter into a shorter series for the month of July. Now, in case you've forgotten, where, where are we in the book of Jonah? Well, in Jonah chapter 3, we read that God has sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh. He preached God's word, and the most amazing thing happened. The city repented, God relented, and it seems like everyone should have lived happily ever after. The chapter should have ended, the book should have ended at chapter 3. But for some reason, we have chapter 4. In chapter 4, it continues And if we read chapter four, sometimes we wonder why is this chapter even in here? The story would have wrapped up so nicely uh, after Nineveh repented and God relented. Well, it's because the book of Jonah is not a book primarily about Nineveh. It's a book primarily about the servant of the Lord and the lessons he was to learn about himself and about God, which are lessons that you and I need to learn as well. And so please stand with me at your act of worship. Dear friends, standing is an act of reverence to read God's word and receive God's word given to us. Jonah chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, reading to verse 4, hear now God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The grass withers and the flower falls, But the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Holy Spirit, we ask for your ministry among us at this time, which is to illuminate our hearts and our minds to understand your word, and then point us to Jesus, where our eyes are satisfied as we behold our Savior and Lord. Along the way, O Holy Spirit, take your word as you use it as a sharp sword, to pierce our hearts, to bring conviction to us, but also use it as a scalpel in the hands of the surgeon to bring healing to the areas we need it. Do this all for your glory and your people's good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my younger years, when I still had a lot of vigor and energy, I would go to these youth retreats and preach. Now, I always felt uh, the great unspoken expectation and pressure that everything about this retreat would really boil down to one night, the last evening's session. An experience taught me this. You could preach dud after dud after dud, but if you brought it that last night, you could be forgiven. You could be restored. It was like baseball. You can strike out three times in a row, but if you hit a home run on that last sermon, you'll go home remembered a hero. And here's how success or effectiveness was often measured at those retreats. The last night, the youth pastor would stand before the group, and he would extend an invitation to those who wanted to accept Jesus. He would say something simply like, from where you are, raise your hands if you want to accept the Lord. Somebody will come and pray for you. Now, sometimes 
dozens of students would raise their hands and receive Jesus. Sometimes, no students would raise their hands and accept Jesus. Every once in a while, in a surprising turn, one of the counselors would raise their hands and accept Jesus. But what I found is that this put extreme pressure on me. And so I began this practice where I would leave the room or I would dismiss myself to go to the bathroom because I didn't want to feel tempted into being joyful and encouraged only when a lot of students raised their hands or really discouraged and defeated when nobody or few raised their hands. If I was honest, there are times that if many students raised their hands that night, I would walk back to my room full of joy, a little skip in my step. But there were other times when nobody raised their hands and I would walk back to my room with my head down, hoping to never have to preach again. You know, the truth is that most preachers would give an arm and a leg to be met with the response that Jonah's preaching was met with. Remember, Jonah preached uh, one of the shortest sermons, and it wasn't even that great of a sermon. Chapter 3 tells you the whole sermon. This is what he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the sermon. Where's his engaging introduction like the one I just did? Where's his funny illustrations? Where's the application? And yet he preaches and a whole city turns to God and repents and they're saved. And so it's utterly confusing then when in response to that, we read what Jonah does. Jonah chapter four, verse one, we read this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. You know, what's going on here? Why is he so upset? This is a cause for celebration. And what we see in this text is that Jonah was quick to anger for this simple reason, because God was slow to anger. Jonah is upset at the turn of events. He had determined that Nineveh wasn't worthy of being saved. They deserved nothing less than disaster and destruction. And so when God saved them, Jonah was furious. He was displeased because he disagreed with God. Jonah thought, God, if you only knew how undeserving they were, you wouldn't have shown them mercy. If you really knew that mercy would be wasted on such an evil people, you wouldn't do that. Clearly, God didn't know what he was doing. Clearly, he didn't, he didn't see things the way Jonah saw it. And what you begin to notice when you look at the root of Jonah's heart, especially his heart of anger, is this. You see an arrogant assumption that Jonah knew better than God. An arrogant assumption that Jonah knew better than God. And what we see in Jonah's heart is what we see in our own heart. It's what makes Jonah so relatable to us. To look at something that God has done and decide and determine, no, that wasn't right. He should have done it another way. Many times in our own lives, we are angry with God or we've gotten angry with God because we've assumed that we know better than he does. And this is why when our lives don't go the way that we planned, the ways that we want, we get upset at them. This is why when suffering and hardships enter our lives, the things that we know don't belong in our lives, we get angry at him for allowing it to happen. Because underneath our anger, deep in our hearts, Here's what we're thinking. God, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for my life. I know what's best for my family. I know what's best for this country, for this world, and whatever's going on. That's not it. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
And so it's so easy to raise our finger in accusation and point at God. Why isn't this happening? But you know what's really difficult? It's really difficult to humbly say before God, God in heaven, you know best and you know better. So when things are tough, things aren't happening the way I want according to my timeline, help me trust that this must be the best thing because it comes from your hand. This must be the best thing because it's what you have sovereignly ordained and allowed to pass. That is hard to do. You see, the very fact that we disagree with anything God does, the fact that we have dissatisfaction over anything God does, the fact that there's any displeasure in the ways that God has chosen to work is an arrogant assumption that we know what God should be doing. When I first started dating my wife, she would always talk about something called a charcuterie board. Now, I had no idea what a charcuterie board is, let alone how to spell it, so I couldn't even Google it. If you don't know, a charcuterie board is one of those boards uh, with cheese and, and meat. It's a, it should be called an awesome board, but it's called a charcuterie board. And I kid you not, I had no idea what it was. And for about six months, I kept calling it a Sean Connery board uh, after the, the actor. And she would ask, should I get grapes or olives? Manchego cheese or Havarti? And my thought was only ever, I don't know what you're talking about. Get whatever you want. You know better than me. I don't know what belongs on this. You see, that kind of posture was, I was required to take it because I wasn't in a position to make suggestions. Whatever she decided, that's what belonged on the board. Now, if I were to ever comment, well, honey, I don't think that cheese pairs well with that fruit. I don't think that meat pairs well with that bread. That would mean that not only did I know what a charcuterie board was, but that I knew better than her. You see, to offer criticism or disagreement or to challenge what she did would only come from a posture that assumed I knew as much or more than her. In the same way, when it comes to how God runs the world, who knows better? If it's you, if you know better than God, then you have every reason to legitimately be angry at him when things happen in the world and in your life that you don't think. If you know better, then your anger is legitimate. But if God knows better, then we are forced into a posture and a position where we say, Lord, whatever comes to pass, whatever comes our way, I trust in you. I lean on you. I rely on you. I believe what you have allowed is the better way. So here's my challenge to you this morning. How do you respond to God when things in life don't work out the way that you would approve or the way that you would expect or the way that you would work it out? Do you respond in arrogant anger like Jonah or do you respond in humble submission? This is what we see happening in the book of Jonah. Remember who Jonah is. Jonah is an Israelite. And Jonah, as an Israelite, hated and despised the Ninevites because they were Assyrians. The Assyrians were at war with Israel. And the Assyrians were the superpower. And as the enemies, they were bullies. They treated Israel very brutally and very cruelly. And this is why Jonah had, long before God even commissioned him to go to Nineveh, Jonah had already determined that Nineveh wasn't worth saving. They were evil. They didn't deserve any of it. 
This is why Jonah disobeyed. This is why Jonah ran away. Jonah says it himself. In chapter four, verse two, Jonah is praying to God and he says, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Don't you remember I said that? Don't you remember where I was? I knew you were gonna do that. He said, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God, don't you remember that I said that and I knew you were gonna make this mistake. I knew that you were gonna be soft on them. That's why I didn't even wanna give you the choice of bringing the message of salvation to them. That's why I ran away. All right, what is Jonah saying? Jonah is saying, no, no, God, Nineveh deserves to reap what they sowed. Nineveh deserves justice, not mercy. I want destruction and disaster. I want to see Hulk smash over this city. But what did Jonah see instead? God's compassionate care. God's relenting mercy. God's forgiving grace. So Jonah is angry at God. Now here's what's interesting. In this short little book, we're introduced to various characters. We see here that Jonah is angry, but there's only one other character in this story who is also angry, who also has anger. We read in Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, that when the Ninevites repent, here's what they say. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. God is the only other person in the entire book who has anger, and yet their anger looks entirely different, doesn't it? On the one hand, you have God's righteous anger. It's directed at the city's great evil and violence. And on the other hand, you have Jonah's unrighteous anger, which is directed at God's grace and mercy. Who here has the right to be angry? You see, in response to reading this chapter in these verses, we think something like, how dare Jonah be angry? Who does Jonah think he is? Let me ask you a question. Why do you think the author doesn't end this book with chapter three? That is the happily ever after ending. Why does he include Jonah chapter four? And the reason is because his purpose isn't complete when the audience reads that Nineveh repented. That wasn't his goal. The author's purpose is complete when we see Jonah's angry response and in it, we see a mirror that shows us our own faults and our own sins. You know, we're so quick to be harsh on Jonah. How dare you be angry with God? All the while we are guilty of the same thing. We get angry at God when he does things that we don't expect him to do or we don't think he should do. We get angry with God when he doesn't do things our way, the better way. So we stand before God just as guilty as this prophet. The late David Pallison, who was a biblical counselor, wrote an article on anger, and he said something very illuminating. He writes this, anger at God is not first an emotion. It is the stance a person takes against God it is the core commitment of the self-willed heart. We act big as if I am God. This God-playing motive gives birth to anger at the real God. And what he's saying here is that outwardly, the outward expression of anger in our lives is really just a manifestation of something found in our heart. 
And you know what that problem is? It's a confusion of the creator-creature distinction. We think we know better than God because we think we're God. That's why we get angry when God orchestrates things and ordains things to pass in our lives and the lives of people we love, and we don't want it. We don't like it. Our surprise, why is this happening? How could this happen? Eventually leads to anger. Anger leads to accusation. God, you got it wrong. Should have done it another way, a better way. My question is, have you ever been angry with God for the way things have turned out in your life? Or maybe God was late and didn't work on the timeline that you decided was best for your life. Maybe God didn't meet the results that you identified. This would be what I need. This is what I want. Maybe God deviated from the plans that you had so carefully laid out and was the sure way to your own happiness. It's often the case that when God doesn't do things our way, we feel it's right to get angry. Because God, don't you know, our way is the better way. Have you ever had an experience like this where a trusted friend, a close friend, or maybe even one of your children came up to you and asked you for advice? They were wrestling. They needed to make a decision. And so they asked you for help. And you give, I mean, you give the most wonderful counsel. You share the most inspired wisdom that came from God himself. Even as you're talking, you're, you're impressing yourself at how good you sound. And in that moment, you're thinking, wow, you're so lucky to have a friend like me. You're so lucky to have me as your parent. I mean, this is gold. Like, this should be in a book. You should pay for this advice. And you give the advice and you feel so good because you just nailed it. You were a good friend. You were a good parent. But then you follow up a few days later. Oh, how did that go? And you realize that that friend or your child literally did nothing that you said. Not one single thing did they follow. And so as a friend... As a parent, what do you feel? Feel a little offended, a little betrayed, feel upset. And all of that leads to anger. Don't you know that if you just did what I said, things would turn out so much better for you? Don't you know your life would just be so much easier if you did what I said. And so many times, that's exactly the heart that we have to God. God, I wanted this. I was praying for this, but this happened. Don't you know that if you followed what I said, it would be much better for me, for the world, even for you? And we get angry with God. Like, you know so well what's best. You know what's best for your children. It's for them to be happy and healthy and walking with the Lord. And so what? You become angry when what? They're not happy, but they're filled with anxiety. You become angry at God when they're not healthy, but you found out they have a diagnosis. You're not full of, of joy when they are walking away from the Lord rebelliously. Because you know that's not what's supposed to happen. Some of you know that you're supposed to be married by now. You're supposed to be in a relationship with someone um, I see you're angry with God because you're sitting there on Coffee Meets Bagel and there's not a single eligible person. Yeah, Coffee Meets Bagel. I'm ready for Ring Meets Finger. I mean, Lord, send somebody into my life. 
you know that your loved one was supposed to live much longer than they live, live a fuller life. They were so full of, of youthful energy. And so you're angry with God. Why did he take them at such a young age? It was much younger than I thought was appropriate. You know that you're wrestling with depression or loneliness. It's a hard burden to bear, but it's getting more severe. It's getting harder to fight. So you're angry with God because you're saying the joy of having Christ is supposed to mean things are getting better, not worse. God, what are you doing? You see, you can fill in the blanks with whatever you're experiencing or you have experienced, but the point is that we get angry with God, don't we? And we think he's getting it wrong because we know best. And so instead of humble submission and trust, we get bitter and angry. I mean, if Jonah really did submit to God and say, God, you know, it's just, you know how he would have prayed? He would have prayed, Lord, okay, I know that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I don't know why you showed it to them. I don't agree that you showed it to them, but oh, Lord, let me trust that your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts than my thoughts. Oh, I don't understand why the Ninevites, I mean, couldn't have been like the Edomites. I mean, they're not so bad but I trust you. That's what humble submission would look like. Rather, what do we see Jonah doing? He's like a, a child throwing a temper tantrum, stomping his feet, holding his breath. I just want to die now. What does he say in verse three? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's sitting here saying, God is better for me to die than 120,000 Ninevites live another day. And God up to this point is such a wonderful, patient counselor. He is listening to the words of Jonah. And finally, he says, okay, I got I to gotta say something. Okay, Jonah, I've let, I, I've let you get it all out of your system. I've let you point your fingers at me. I let you ask me all your questions. I have one question for you. So he asks in verse four, do you do well to be angry? God asked Jonah, do you really think that you have the right to be angry at me? Is it really right and proper for the creation to challenge and question its creator? Dear friends, perhaps God is asking you this same question. Do you do well to be angry at me? You see, here was Jonah's ultimate problem. In the moment of anger, Jonah forgot who sat on the throne and who wore the crown. He got it all confused. He knew it at one point. If you remember in Jonah chapter one, there's the storm, there's the tempest, there are the winds, there are the waves. All the sailors on the boat are uh, afraid and they cast lots. So lots fall on Jonah, knowing that it's Jonah's fault. They come to him and they say, who are you? And Jonah's answer is right on the money. Jonah says this, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the sailors have never heard of who the Lord is, Yahweh is. They learn who Yahweh is, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And what is their immediate response to knowing who God is? It's verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They knew their place before God. Oh, God is the creator. God is in control and sovereign over all of this. So their response is proper, exceedingly afraid of God. But at some point, Jonah, who once knew this truth, it seems that he's forgotten this truth. 
So instead of living in a posture of being exceedingly afraid at the greatness of God, what do we read instead at the beginning of this chapter? Jonah is exceedingly displeased at the grace of God. Somewhere in this Jonah forgot who sat on the throne and who wore the crown. And this shows us that something is exceedingly wrong. Jonah was angry because he forgot who God was. And when he forgot who God was, he thought he was God. But dear friends, that's not only Jonah's problem. That's our problem. When we forget who God is, we start thinking we know better. So we question and we accuse. So the question is, how do we combat this? Because this temptation is in all of us, right? To be angry at the things uh, that, are, that are entering our lives or the things that are not entering our lives. So we get so tempted. How do we combat this? And the answer is a simple one. It's to preach the gospel to yourself. But what does that mean? Well, the gospel tells you two things you cannot forget. The, f- the first thing the gospel says is who God is. Who God is. And you know what that means? That truth reminds you that God's way is best. Who God is, the sovereign, uncreated one. So his ways are best. But then the gospel comes and reminds you of second truth, what God has done. And that truth reminds you not only that God's way is best, but God's way is best for you. You see, first you need to remember God is God. His ways are always best. And then you need to remember, well, God is my God. And so his ways are always best for me. That's the promise of the gospel. The gospel gives you this assurance, not just that God is working out all things for the general good, but that he is your God and he is working all things out for your eternal good. What is the gospel that it can have this kind of power in someone's life? Well, let me explain. Later in the New Testament, there's a figure who shows up. And he is rehashing this story of Jonah with a bunch of Jews. And he makes the most outrageous claim. He's talking about the story of Jonah. And you know what he says in Matthew 12, 41? He says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When Jesus Christ utters these words, what does he mean? He says, this prophet that you've been reading about, this prophet that you've been studying, he is a flawed and failed prophet. He is incomplete and imperfect. And a better one than him has come. He challenges them and says, remember Jonah as God to take away his life because his enemies lived, but this greater Jonah has come because he willingly laid down his life so that his enemies could live. This greater Jonah is so much greater because Jonah the prophet is sitting there saying, it is better for me to die than to live. But the greater Jonah said, it is necessary for me to die so that you may live. Jesus Christ is the greater Jonah, sent by God the Father into the world to do for his enemies, sinners like you and me, what we most certainly do not deserve. He took the curse of death for us in our place to bestow upon us the richness of his blessings that he deserved through his perfect life. The gospel is so simple and yet has massive implications. God loves you and he gave his son for you. So now, you can know with utmost certainty that God is not just working out all things for the best, but he's working out all things for your best. 
to remember who God is and what he has done for you in Jesus is to have the assurance that when things in your life aren't going according to plan, when decisions you've made are now changed, when children you've raised are not who you thought they would be, when investments you put in are turning out differently, when situations in life are painful and difficult and scary and uncertain, the gospel assures you God is working out what is best for you. And so says Apostle Paul in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me close with this story I came across this week. In 1987, 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell into a well shaft in Midland, Texas, while she was playing outside. Now, on, in the yard, the well shaft was only eight inches wide, but it was very narrow and deep, 22 feet below ground. Having fallen in with one leg stuck over her head, she was awkwardly positioned as she was wedged in the shaft. And unable to simply reach down and pull her out, rescuers had to drill a parallel vertical shaft 29 feet down, five feet across, and they had to drill through solid rock in order to reach her. The whole process took 58 hours to retrieve her. Now, the problem with, of this is not that she would have died from that fall, but that she would die from dehydration and shock. Now, when the paramedic finally reached Jessica, he squirted petroleum jelly on the shaft to pull her out, and he began pulling on her leg, which was stuck. And feeling incredible pain, Jessica kept retracting her leg. She was crying. She was screaming, no, 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 no. The whole thing was painful for her. But knowing he had to get her out at all costs, that he might even have to break her in order to save her, something that she could never understand, the rescuer pulled and pulled until he held her safely in his arms. You see, what frightened child could understand and believe that this pain, that this momentary affliction was the best thing for them? And yet it was far beyond what she could ever comprehend. Dear friends, could it be when your life isn't going the way that you think it is, you're undergoing momentary affliction, maybe even pain, when you're confronted with occasions and temptations to get angry at God for the way things aren't going, could it be that God is doing something in your life that is far better for you than you could ever understand? Can it be that it is a better response to submit and trust than to be angry and bitter. See, when you preach the gospel to yourself and you remember God not only knows what's best, but God is doing the very best for me. It begins to weed out the arrogant assumption that you know better than God. And in its place, it's putting the steady assurance and confidence that God is working out the best for you. And so when that moment comes in your life, when you feel the temptation to be angry with God, and you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit ask you, do you do well to be angry? The gospel allows you now to respond, no, Lord, I do well to trust in you. I do well to wait on you. I do well to rely on you. Let's pray.